Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Amani Reed. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Associate Professor Lenise Williams. In their conversation, Professor Williams discusses her recent talk at an art symposium in southern France. She also talks about her new book project on two cloth figures given to her during her graduate studies. Uh, what did you do this past weekend? Oh, I get... went to a symposium in Montpellier in the All south right. of France, which was incredible. That exhibition that Bill Ferris put together was, is really a, an important exhibition because no one in the United States saw fit to sort of commemorate a particular moment, this, you know, on this anniversary. But he did in this exhibition, and he had James Meredith there who integrated the University of Mississippi. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. What was, the, what was the, um, the, the event? Can you talk a little bit? The exhibition bit? was called I Am a Man, and okay. it's at the um, Pavilion Populaire. And there was a two-day symposium at the Michel Fabre that Bill put together, and he invited actually several people. William Sturkey was there also. Oh, wow, great. And, but there were several of our colleagues from UNC there. A third of that exhibition featured photographs from the Wilson Library collection that had never been published. Wow. So And this was in France. This was in France. It's actually going to traveling to the new National Museum in Washington DC in April. Oh, okay. And then it's going to a museum in Johannesburg, South Africa in wow. the fall. It's amazing. So, so what, what was your part in this, this whole event? The, the exhibition focused on photography, and I wanted to tease out the fact that photographs are not what people were seeing at the time the events took place. Hmm. They're seeing images on television and in newspapers. Okay. And in newspapers, which are the most enduring of the images because they were the cheapest to get, and, and while quite a few African Americans had television, more of them could afford newspapers than could afford television, those images are, I don't know what they saw. I have hmm. a sense of what they saw because of the technology that was used in newspapers, but it's not those clear, crisp images that are in right. an exhibition. And then if you look in archives today, if you were to look, if you lived in that time and you want to look at what images were circulating, the only images you have are images that have been microfilmed and then digitized versions of the microfilming. Because right. since the 30s, the microfilm was deemed the uh, object of record. And microfilming on images of people of color is incredibly destructive. In what way? It's a high, it's a high um, contrast process. And so it strips any subtleties. And mm. my own research had to do with um, the, re the way that I sort of got to this is that I had found some newspapers at a flea market in Paris in 2009 uh, that had a black boxer. 
Right. That had a black boxer on it who I now study. And when I started to actually work on it, I only had that one newspaper, so I was going to digital sources, and the digital sources looked so different, mm. I was curious as to why. And I found out, and the newspaper, meanwhile, this man looks like a Hollywood movie star, which yeah. is revolutionary in the 20s, okay. and doesn't fit with all of the other types of imagery of black people in Paris during that moment, and elsewhere for that moment. I mean, this is the moment of stereotypes and menstruacy yeah. images and all of that kind of thing. Is this so, Jack Johnson that you were studying? No, Pat Alfonso Brown, a oh, okay. welterweight uh-huh. champion of the world. And he was the only welterweight in Paris. Jack Johnson is there. Everybody else is a heavyweight. And here's this guy who is 5'10". Same reach as Jack Johnson, but he weighs 116 pounds. Oh, totally oh, different wow. body type. Yeah, yeah. Totally different. And there he is on the cover of a sports newspaper, which is about that big and just his head. And it's it's hits all the boxes around the conventions of beauty. So I was really stunned. So I started to do research into that newspaper. And I found that they were using a cutting-edge technology called rotogravure. And that completely revolutionized the way people of color could look and cheat newsprint. Oh, no. oh, wow. And I would have never known it if I hadn't had the actual object. Right. So my yeah. argument was that physical objects matter when it comes to representation of people of color in newspapers, which are circulating images more widely than any other source up to a certain point in history. But then historically, because the archives, because all the libraries started um, microfilming, what went along with that directive from the Library of Congress was to destroy the newspapers so they don't exist. Right. They don't exist. I will never be able to see what people saw. Mm-hmm. We will never be able to come up with questions like I came up with because I had a newspaper in my hand. Right. And I could see the coating, which is I now know is a clay coating, to make it feel heavier like an object, a luxury item. Yeah. None of these subtleties will be able to be questioned or known because the physical object doesn't exist. So I've part of this, all over the U.S. So, so you part, part of this like directive was probably just an oversight of the people that decided to do this certain thing with these images because they weren't considering the. They weren't the considering the images. Yeah. They were privileging text. Oh, Microfilming yeah. privileges text. Right. And not only that, they were there was nobody at the table to say there are implications around Mm, visual representations of people of color when you use this technology. So nowhere, I can't, and the first, in order to say that the image that I had was the first, I had to look at everybody who was using rotogravure. And most, it wasn't used that much, so that was relatively easy, but I did find a New York no, Philadelphia newspaper, Philadelphia Tribune, a black newspaper. Oh, okay. They got a rotogravure press, and it's expensive to set this up, too. They got it the month before the image was produced on the newspaper that I had. And I can read about the lead-up to using this. They're referring back to the New York Times, which has a rotogravure section with, with celebrities in oh, it. Oh, okay. But, and then... I can read about what happened afterwards. 
And there's a creation of a whole new discourse that black people are having around looking beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I can't see what they saw because I can't find the newspaper. I looked all over the freaking United States. Nobody's got the newspapers. Because the Library of Congress said, microfilm them. Mm -hmm. And then after digitizing started, they put out directives to digitize in 2006. They've digitized all the microfilms. Right, so it doesn't help anything. No, it's even worse. Really? Digitizing flattens it out even a little mm. bit more. So my my point, one of my points was the images that we, that exhibition is incredibly unique because we're able to see things and details that they couldn't even see in the moment. Wow. Yeah. Wasn't even available. Yeah. And... Um, now here it is. So, and those are digital image, but they're digitized from an actual photograph. Mm -hmm. And that is what matters. That object really matters when it comes to visual representation. Wow. So that was my talk. Can you talk just in general about your research approach and what you you study just in a general sense? Oh, sure. I'm sure it connects to what you were just talking about. Yes, yes. So I'm an art historian. I've been trained as an art historian. But within the area of art history, what I find is that depending on who you study with and where you study and at what moment you study, your approach can can range from extremely broad to extremely narrow. I have a very broad approach to it because the person I was studying with had a very broad approach to it. But my approach is actually even broader than his because there were all these other new methods and theories that are uh, I found to be useful that didn't happen until after I was studying. So um, in art history, we work from images, objects. We work from physical things out. Mm-hmm. We study those, we use our methods to interrogate those objects, and then we come up with some sort of theory that we'd like to talk about, as opposed to having a theory, which is what happens in other disciplines, and then finding something to apply that theory to. Basically, when you look at an object or an image or a piece of architecture, you're looking at a series of choices. Yeah, You're looking at a whole lot of choices that a lot of people made. And one of the things that I'm really adamant about, certainly in my teaching, as well as in my work, is that people are behind everything we see. And people come with biases. Technology is not neutral. There's nothing that is neutral that has where there's human intervention. And therefore, I always try to keep it in the forefront that we're looking at choices. And so I start off all my classes with we're looking at a series of choices and selections. And let's look at what they, someone or some group chose to do. And if we can figure out who made the choices, then we can also tease out what was happening in a cultural moment that might have shaped the choices that they made that produced a particular something. Wow. So I am, that's, and my interest, I mean, 
In terms of what objects I look at, I'm really interested in a lot of different things, but I was, I've was, i specialized in, well, people refer to me as being a Latin Americanist. That's partly true, but the, there's a big overlap with African diaspora. It's African diaspora with the specialization on black Latin Americans, wherever they are in the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. And my research is actually more specific to the early 1920s, but sometimes it moves past that. Yeah. And then sometimes I just come across things and images and objects, or sometimes objects come to me that capture my interest enough that I just take off and go in that direction and explore it so with the tools kind of, that I have. You're, you're going with your, your what inspires you and what kind yes. of is drawn, you're drawn to. Yes, yeah. because, I mean, I've acquired a really large toolkit, and it can be applied to a lot of different things, and so I do that. That's great. So is there a, do you have an origin story on this particular, like, interest in going into academia and going into becoming an art historian? Is there something you can... Interesting. Um, well, actually, my interest in art generally is probably shaped a lot by my mother, yeah. who was a, an extremely creative person. And I have a brother who um, I grew up with this brother having his the making club, he called it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were on his good side, you could participate in the making club, and then we'd make <laughs> all these things. That brother is now a, a, an urban planner, so he has actually executed <laughs> in, towards the direction yeah. that he was doing then. Um, I used to make all of the bulletin boards. My mother was a teacher, an elementary school teacher, so I'd make all her bulletin boards and paint and cut and do all these things. So I've had a long-standing interest in that. And also, right around seventh grade, I became friends with a girl at my school. I got switched to different schools. Oh, first, fifth grade. Switched to different schools in fifth grade and private schools in Cincinnati where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I met a girl whose mother was a painter. I had never seen a person who made their living as an artist. And so I loved going to her house because her mother had a studio in the house. Yeah. And it was absolutely fantastic because she would talk to me about what she was doing. She talked to me about painting. She talked to me about the history of painting. She talked to me about what she was doing. And she had she was commissioned a lot. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, she has... Um, recently I saw her and she has a postcard. She painted Oprah Winfrey's dogs for her. This oh, big wow. Job. Yeah, so she she had a lot of commissions from a lot of wealthy patrons. Yeah. And um, so I was absolute. it was a tr- transforming point to know this woman and to watch her over the years make her living as a, as a painter. It changed the way I thought about art. I could actually see somebody making something, and she could talk to me about it. And then in seventh grade, I made friends with another new student whose father, who, whose father was a collector, a major collector. In fact, he was on the board of the Taft Museum, and I think the bulk of his collection went to the Taft Museum in Cincinnati, John Warrington. The children were not particularly interested in his collection, 
but yeah. I was. Uh-huh. And so I would always ask him about the collection. And sure I, one of the to... children said to me, he would always say, oh, why don't, are you bringing her over? Because, <laughs> yeah, go and get her. Yeah, this, yeah, I want to see her. And he talked to, I remember him showing me some prints. He yeah. had incredible pieces of African art, just stunning pieces that were, and they were all throughout the house. And they actually live with the pieces. There was a sense of preciousness around the prints, which were kept in drawers. Everything else was in the house. Wow. And, you know, sometimes sculptures were knocked over. <laughs> you know, there were seven kids in that house. Yeah. Oh, my and God. And so they yeah. had, they lived with the pieces. Yeah. <laughs> which also shaped the way I see art because, now, you know, when I look in museums, it, it was striking to see pedestals and lights and the fact that I couldn't touch it because when he was talking to me and you know I'm 12 years old and he's talking to me about an object he picked it up mm-hmm. he gave it to me yeah I could hold that yeah and that really impacted me so yeah that's, we, I just took my my kids are seven and four and we went this Sunday. We went to the North Carolina Museum of Art. Uh-huh. We spent most of the time outside, but yes. we went into the exhibitions. And I'm like, remember, we like walk with our hands behind our back. Yeah, that's that's. And to, I had gone to museums, but I didn't go to museums as much as I went to those mm-hmm. those homes. Yeah, and so. It stuck out to me that I had to go into a museum and I couldn't get close to something, and I couldn't touch it. And I couldn't even lean into it because there's a distance. There's a museum distance that one must keep. Mm -hmm. And so, but I found myself, you know, going to museums and I'd go and talk to him and I'd say, well, they have this thing. He goes, oh, I have something similar. You can look at mine. And then we'd look. So that was really fantastic. So there was a way in which those things really made an impression on me. Yeah. And I did not set out to be an art historian. Mm -hmm. I had... You know, I did other things before I became an art historian. But art was always the through line through everything right. that I was doing. I mean, I did print. I got an NEA fellowship to do printmaking, so I was working with Bob Blackburn in New York City. I did a lot of other things, but art was always a part of it. So, Can you talk a little bit about your current project, what you're working on doing your oh. fellowship? Okay, now that's an example of an object coming to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting, I think, example of that. I am working on a book project that looks at two figures which look like cloth dolls. I mean, they have the forms of a male and a female and they're wearing clothing and they're, you know, different types of clothing that signifies male and female and, and um, well, you know. But they're not actually dolls because they were made in Edgefield, South Carolina in the late 20s. And they were, when they were given, given to a, a person They were made by a woman who was a traditional healer, and Mm -hmm. she told her granddaughter when she gave them to her that they were not dolls. They were not meant to be played with, and they were meant to be kept away from people in a shoebox, you know, 
in a closet or something or just kept away from people. They weren't meant to be, you know, handled by just anyone. Um, I came across, they were shown to me when I was teaching in between, I got a master's uh, in art history from Kent State University, and I actually graduated in December of mm-hmm. 1996. And I taught for a friend who was on sabbatical at Cleveland State University in spring of 97. And I was teaching an African-American art class, and the class had, what, we were like three classes in, and I was talking about African threads of Africanisms that had might that where you could sort of trace ideas, practices into the Americas and the whole debate about that. So I was showing some Congo and Kisi projections. And Congo and Kisi are wooden carved figures that have nails driven in them. And each one of those nails is tied to an oath. They're made by healers and communities. And they actually, those oaths are, they're saliva that's put on each one of those nails by the two people making the oath. And the the Nganga, who is the healer in, in, or the specialist in the particular neighborhood that is making it, um, makes certain incantations as he is praying and pushing that nail into that wooden figure. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he is activating a connection with ancestors so that there is some accountability for the oaths that are being made so that, you know, the ancestors will are acting as sort of enforcers of that particular oath. And so oftentimes figures, these figures will have a lot of different nails because a lot of people, you know, a person has made a lot of different promises that have been carried through, et cetera. Um, And a person, and a student came up to me at the end of the class. The class had 120 students. And she came up to me, and she said to me, I have something that works like that. I could not imagine what she could possibly have that worked like in Nkisi, but I was curious enough to ask, would you bring it to class so that I can, would you, you know, would you be willing to share that with me? I'd love to see what you have. And she said that she would. And so in the next class, she came up to me after class, to, and she came walked back with me to my office, and she opened this box, and in this shoebox were these two figures. She explained, she told me a story. They had been given to her by her grandmother. She was born and raised, the student, Nancy, was born and raised in, in Queens, in New York City. Okay. Her grandmother gave them to her when she left Queens after she had gotten married. And her grandmother said, and doing, when she left Queens, she was the first in all of her family there to leave that area. So her mother, grandmother gave them to her, and she said, these will, you're the first to leave this area, and I don't have money. I don't have any money that I can give you, but I can give you these. They will connect, keep you connected to your family, and they will protect you. And so she took them to Cleveland. Now the grandmother... Lily May Weaver, living in New York, her grandmother, Ellen Weaver, had given them to her 
when she was, I think, eight or nine and living in Edgefield, South Carolina. That's how the story gets back to Edgefield. They were given to her, according to the family story, um, there was a fire. Lily Mae and her, and her youngest sister, Rose, who was around three, had been playing outside, and they came in the house to, to warm themselves up, and so they would often sit by a hearth in the kitchen. And evidently they did it all the time, and they would sort of lean in, lean back, and warm their bodies. Well, in this particular instance, a spark jumped from the fire and landed on the back of Rose's dress. Mm. And she caught and ignited her dress, and she jumped up and she ran, and as you know, air feeds flames. Mm -hmm. And so she ran and she dove under a bed, and but she was on fire. And Lily Mae called out to her grandmother who was outside, she came in, she brought a bucket, and she put the fire out, Lily um, roses under the bed, but the fire had burnt the dress into her skin. Mm. She went outside, she, she stripped bark from a particular tree and scraped the inside of the bark and made it into a gel, and then she used her finger to reach under this bed and put this gel onto this dress that's burned into her so that she could bring her from underneath the bed and pull the dress from her skin. Nancy's grandmother, as an adult, before she left, told her that her, she could still hear, hear her sister's screams. Mm. And at that point, she's in her late 60s. Yeah. She could still hear the screams. And she said it was like her sister screamed for two weeks and then the screaming stopped when she died. And about two weeks after that, Lily Mae, her grandmother woke her up in, early in the morning and took her to the cemetery. And evidently she had made several trips. She always went with her grandmother to the family plot. And she gathered things from graves and she put them in a ceramic bowl that she made, evidently she was a ceramicist, and put it inside her coat, inside her dress, close to her heart. Mm -hmm. And she, her intention was to put them inside of these figures. And people, she was a very well-known traditional healer in the yeah. area. People came from all over to have her do things for them. And she made these the family story says she made these for other people. Wow. So I've been trying to locate them as well. But anyway, mm -hmm. she she brought the things back. She brought the materials back from the from the graves. And then three weeks or so later, she showed the daughter these two doll figures. Now, she didn't see them again until it was when she was 11 or so. Mm -hmm. She saw she witnessed a lynching in the town square and she was hiding she was coming from someplace else the 11 year old girl she hid as she came upon this she saw what was happening and she ran home mm -hmm. she got home she was 
very upset, needless to say, and her she was telling her grandmother what she saw, and her, the first thing her grandmother asked her was, did you see anyone? Did anybody see you? And she said, yes, she had seen a neighbor's son, somebody around her age, and her grandmother said, you all have to get out of here. Mm. That night, the family left, and it was in that moment, as she was getting into a, a, a buggy with a, yeah. a mule-drawn carrot that her grandmother gave her those to keep her and them connected because she was they were leaving mm-hmm. part of the family in Edgefield. And they went to Greenscut, Georgia, which actually, you know, when I first saw this, you know, sort of looked at maps to figure out where these things were, I thought... I thought there was a great distance, but when I actually, I took the, I took the spirits, as Nancy referred to them as spirits to me, mm-hmm. I took them to Edgefield two years ago, and while tracking down certain places, I realized that Augusta, Greenscut is 10 minutes from Augusta, and Augusta and Edgefield are like going from Chapel Hill to Durham. Oh, wow. It's that close. Yeah, yeah. So people were actually, it's a very fluid border. Mm-hmm. There were people in Edgefield who had family in Greenscott who okay. they visited yeah. quite frequently. I didn't know that. Nancy didn't know that until I told her that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because they're keeping connected, but at the same time, she was seeing them. Yeah. But this is late 20s, early 30s, and this is the moment of the Great Migration. Yeah. And indeed, they moved to, to New, York, New York, York City. Wow. So these spirits have actually moved from Edgefield to Greenscut, Georgia, to Queens, New York, to Cleveland. And then she gave them to me. And she has, when she gave them to me, I said to her, don't, this is your family. Don't you right. want to write this story? Yeah. It seemed obvious to me that she would be the person to write the story. And she said, no. She said, when you put the image up of the Nkisi, I got the chills and I broke out into a sweat. And that's when I knew they chose you, which was, I didn't know her. Yeah. I just, I didn't know her. And yet she's telling me that these spirits are choosing me to write this story about them. And so I said, I'm about to go and do a PhD. I'm not even going to be here. And she said, we'll work on them while you're here. And I said, I'm not sure if I'll have time, but I will try. Mm -hmm. And so there was a five-month period that I was there. I didn't have time to work on them because I had won this commission to create this sculpture that's now in the children's floor of the library in downtown Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So I had to install that before I left. So I didn't have time. So I met with her right before I left to give them, and I gave them to her, and then she handed them back to me. And I said, but it's your family. And she said, take them with you. And I said, but I'm going to work. You know, I've got to go and get this degree. And she said, but you're going to study with Robert Ferris Thompson. Take them with you and show them to him, and maybe you'll be able to do some work. So I said, okay. 
six months. I'll do what I can in six months, and if I can't do anything, I'll send them back. Right. And she said, okay. So I took them to with me to Yale. And I didn't tell Robert Ferris Thompson that I had them. But within two weeks, I showed up at his office. I made an appointment, actually, and I yeah. went to my appointment. I had him in a, a box, and I got to his office, and he was working, and he was working on his computer, and he looked up, he glanced up, and he said, who did you bring with you? And I thought, that's weird. Is there somebody behind me? And I looked behind me, there was nobody behind me. And I said, nobody. And he, So he kept working, and then he stopped and he just looked at me and he said, who did you bring with you, Lenise? And I said, I didn't bring anybody, I just brought these. And he came around his desk and he looked at them and then he fell to the floor and he started praying in Kikongo. And I didn't know what was happening. After he prayed, he stood up and he said, those are really powerful spirits, where did you get them from? And so I explained the story to him. Yeah. And he brought out, I mean, he has been initiated in several religious groups in Central and West Africa, but he brought out Nkisi that he owned that were a part of his initiations, and he brought them and he set them there. And he said, those are very much connected to this. And he looked at them and he started to actually do an interpretation of what he saw. And he said their presence can be felt. And so I explained the story to him, yeah. and he said, okay, she wants to know, okay, so you've got this story about what's inside of them, and she wants to know if that's really inside. I'm going to set you up with a curator at the Peabody Museum of Anthropology, and maybe she can help you figure out how to go about that. So he did. He set that up. I went to talk to this curator. She was very interested Mm-hmm. In them, she did not have the response that he had in terms of the visceral response, right? But she did respond to them in terms of what the story was about, and she was keenly interested. So she set up. She said to me, "I have a friend who's the chief of radiology at Yale University Hospital. I wonder if we can get an MRI. I'll find out and let you know." Yeah. And so, like two months went by, and then she she emailed me and she said. He's agreed to do it, but you've got to come at 4.30 in the morning before the rounds start. So I said, I'll meet you at 4.30 in the morning. So Mm. I went, and I took them with me. And the radiologist walked in, and he introduced himself, and he explained to me that he was from Alabama and that he was Jewish. And he said when he he grew up with two African-American women that were— housekeepers for his family and Mm -hmm. he said they were housekeepers he said but they did a lot more than that they kept me healthy Mm -hmm. and he said when I started medical school I realized that everything they were doing to keep me healthy was what I was learning in medical school Mm. so I'm going to help you with this and he turns to the two technicians and he said these are human beings. You treat them like they're human beings. You cradle their heads and you put them on pillows. And I remember their faces. Surprise. Mm-hmm. But he was very matter of fact about it. And he said, that's what we're going to do. And that's what they did. Wow. 
So I, I hate to cut you off because I think you could talk about this all day, but <laughs> yes. can I have one more question if you okay. can answer it real quick? Yes. It's kind of a big question, but we ask all of our guests this. What's a book that changed your life? Flash of the Spirit, Robert Ferris Thompson's book. It was written in, it's in its 46th reprint. Wow. It came out in the middle of the 80s. I remember, um, I didn't hear about it when it came out. I heard about it at least um, early 90s. Yeah. And I remember going to a talk to see him at City College doing a talk and that talk, he spoke a lot of different languages. He brought in musicians. And I said to myself, that's what art history should look like. That was the definitive moment mm-hmm. when I said, that's what I'm going to do. And you got to study with him, too. And I got to study with that's him. That's great. Yes. Awesome. So, yes. Well, thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Check back at IAH. .unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.